Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Our topic today is Same Old Story, Unpacking the 2012 Alberta Provincial Election. Like the weather over the past few years, a few years, uh, winds of change have been blowing in Alberta. And we have heard that there could have been a possible storm ahead. And all eyes, indeed, in Canada and beyond have been on Alberta and the elections that were taking place April 23rd and the, and the weeks leading up to it. However, April 24th, Lethbridge Herald said on the front page, headline, the title was, Same Old Story, and it asked, and so we ask you, was it really the same old story? Uh, do the number of seats, the 61, 17, 5, and 4, truly fully reflect and describe the voter opinion in this province and what's happening with voters? And we could ask, how could the weather men and weather women have been so far out on their predictions? Our speaker today, and I'm going to not go into a lot of detail about the topic because Harold has lots to tell us and I don't want to cut into his time. But Harold is an associate professor in the, in the Department of Political Science at the University of Lethbridge. We are indeed fortunate to have someone of his caliber so close to us and speaking with us today. His teaching and his research focus on Canadian politics, Alberta politics, political parties and elections, and particular emphasis is on political party finance and the use of social media for political com communication. So all of those things are particularly pertinent to us today as we listen to him speak. I'll just remind you, please, that the session is $10. The lunch is included in that, but everybody pays. If you'd ask someone at your table, please, to gather that money, someone will be around to collect it. Harold will speak for about 30 minutes, and then we will break for lunch, and after that, there will be a question and answer period. Thank you. Harold? There. Well, thank you, Diane, and thank you to uh, all of you for coming. Uh, as Diane mentioned, uh, there's a lot to say, and I'm going to warn you that I'm going to be leaving out a lot of things that you're probably interested in. Uh, I'm not going to talk much about whether the polls got it wrong. I'm not going to talk much about the Alberta Party. I'm actually not even going to be talking a whole lot about the NDP because they're a bit to the side of what I, I really want to focus on, which is the shifts uh, that the Conservatives have undergone. Uh, I invite you to ask about any of those things, though, during the uh, question and answer period, and I'd be more than happy to uh, to deal with those kind of questions. When uh, Lisa Lambert first asked me to uh, come and talk about the election, I think it was very right around the start of the election, and I think I broke the SACPA record for saying yes to being asked to speak here because I was very intrigued because it looked like that the conservatives were going to lose, and who wouldn't want a chance to dissect something so monumentous? But as we know, it didn't turn out quite that way. So if we look... Uh, I have to warn you, I love graphs. I've never seen a graph I didn't love, so there are a few graphs in here. This, the, the blue bar represents vote share for the Conservatives since 1993, and the red bar represents seat share for the Conservatives since 1993. And you would be hard-pressed to identify the 2012 election as anything unusual or out of the ordinary, right? It did look very much like the same old story. Um, the Conservatives won fairly handily, helped 
but in uh, good measure by fragmentation of the opposition vote and our electoral system producing a, another healthy majority for them. And it's a bit surprising that we got this sort of same old story result because change was a major theme in the election. In fact, early on in the campaign, Danielle Smith, the leader of the Wild Rose Alliance, actually commented that she thought change was going to be the ballot question, what people were going to actually be making their voting decision on. Now, what was kind of odd, though, is that she was campaigning for a change of government, but at the same time arguing that Alberta didn't want to change. And if you looked at Alison Redford's closing comments in the leaders' debate, she was the person campaigning to get reelected, and her emphasis has always been on wanting to change. So change was a major theme here, so we, but not in the way that we might have expected. And I think the solution to understanding why this unfolded the way it did is something very important about the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party has always been driven by its leaders. We often have a tendency to try to paint the Conservatives as being a particular ideological crystallization. I'm going to talk about their ideological positioning. But more than anything else, I think they've been vehicles for and creatures of their leaders. The shifts between leaders also result in fairly significant shifts in policy. The party under Lougheed was very different than the party under Klein. And I'm going to argue that the party under Redford is substantially different from the party that has gone before. So I think that's important to understand. So I want to rewind to set the context for this election. We want to go back to uh, 2006 when Ed Stelmack became leader of the Conservatives. And what I want to focus on is not so much that Ed Stelmack won, but I want to focus on one of the losers. And this man, Ted Morton, ran for the leadership and finished third. Now, Ted Morton, to me, was the prototype for the Wild Rose Alliance. He campaigned on a trinity of ideas that were very important to him, um, economic conservatism, a more limited role for government, lower taxation, right, uh, balanced budgets above everything else, social conservatism, at least um, more uh, – emphasis on traditional conceptions of family and marriage and things like that. Uh, the idea of conscience rights he toyed with a little bit during his campaign, but also on the idea of a firewall, that we needed to protect Alberta from the unwanted pressure and advances of the federal government. So he was one of the authors in 2001 of the famous firewall letter, which he co-authored with, among others, Stephen Harper, our current prime minister. So this set of ideas was very important. But when Morton finished third, I would argue that showed that there was a limited appetite within the conservatives and with, with among the, the party membership for that set of ideas. Uh, he placed a strong third, but it was still third. And I think that was the beginning of the formation of the Wild Rose Alliance. I think it actually started earlier uh, than a lot of people point to. Now, of course, the oil and gas royalty issue um, managed to push this on a little further. It played into the whole economic conservatism argument. It looked to be a tax grab. But also, more importantly, I think, spurred the uh, oil and gas industry in Calgary to start supporting the Wild Rose uh, party financially and gave them a financial boost to go along with uh, the bit of movement we were seeing at the grassroots. Now, to understand the positioning, I'm going to array the parties on a sort of left-right, very simple uh, kind of 
axis here that I'm going to then rip apart and show you why this is fundamentally wrong, and then return to this simple left-right axis after having critiqued it. So I'm going to warn you, I'm going to be incredibly inconsistent here. Now, just I, I haven't labeled the parties, but I'm using their traditional colors. We have the NDP in orange, the liberals in red, the conservatives in blue, and um, the right uh, parties, which are going to change, but for the most part, the wild rose in green. Now, obviously, the parties overlap, right? There are uh, people on the, the right of the NDP, for example, who would probably be comfortable in the liberals, and there are some liberals who would probably be reasonably comfortable as New Democrats. We're going to just simplify that. This is just for illustration purposes. Now, this to me represents what the party system looked like from, say, about 1997 through to about 2010. Um, we saw we saw this basic constellation. The conservatives were occupied the center for the most part because they're the biggest party, but very much drifted to the right. And there's always been this small right element of Alberta politics, people who were upset at the conservatives, who didn't think they were conservative enough. So it's gone by different names and different forms. In 1997, it was social credit. 2001, we saw the Alberta First Party. 2004, we saw the Alberta Alliance. And then we saw the formation of the Wild Rose Alliance out of a merger of the Wild Rose and Alberta Alliance Party just prior to the 2008 election. But we've always seen this. Now, what happened, um, the combination of Morton losing and the oil and gas royalty um, issue, along with Daniel Smith getting chosen as leader, we saw the growth of the Wild Rose Party. And by the end of 2009 and early 2010, they were basically statistically tied with the conservatives in voter support. And that was squeezing the conservatives pretty significantly. So as a matter of party strategy, they had two ways they could respond. One thing is that they could push back to the right. So they could try to recapture those voters they were losing. Okay, so that's one tactical possibility they had. The other possibility was to try to drift more to the left and try to take over some of those liberal voters. If you're not going to regain those people you've lost to the right, well, you have to find that voter support somewhere else. Now, I'd argue that under Premier Stelmack, there wasn't a particularly coherent kind of response to this. Premier Stelmack tried to do both simultaneously. Uh, so, for example, he would appoint Ted Morton as his finance minister and then make him run big deficits right at the same time, which is basically what happened. And then complain the wild rose was too extreme. So uh, Premier Stelmack, I, to me, tried to, to do both and, and couldn't quite figure out a coherent kind of response to this. Now, this brings us up to the 2011 leadership uh, selection process when Alison Redford uh, won. And I think under Alison Redford, I think she very much clarified the party's direction. And again, I want to focus on somebody who lost. Yes, Ted Morton lost again. This time, though, he finished fourth, and a fairly distant fourth. His voter support had dropped pretty significantly between what it was in the 2006 campaign to 2011. And to me, that indicated that a lot of that support base within the Conservatives had, in fact, already left, had drifted over to the Wild Rose Party. And they just weren't there, right? To me, it showed how much that had changed. And to me, Alison Redford really did represent more of a shift to the center. And she was quite explicit in campaigning on this. Uh, she talked, the kinds of issues she talked about were about a more urban, modern Alberta. She campaigned on change, on changing the party during the campaign very explicitly. And one very important sign that I, th uh, I think was important during the uh, campaign 
was this promise. Between the first and second ballot, Premier, or now Premier Redford, then just uh, um, Alison Redford, she promised that if she was elected as, pre- as leader and became Premier, that she would restore the education funding to the uh, to school boards. You'll remember the province had negotiated an agreement with the Alberta Teachers Association uh, for fairly substantial uh, pay increases to buy labor peace. And then when the budget, when the economy tanked, they didn't have the money to pay for it, they decided, yeah, school board, sorry, we're not going to actually give you the money to pay for the pay raise we negotiated on your behalf. You'll have to find the money somewhere. She promised to restore this. And that was a very important signal, not just to teachers, but also to nurses and uh, other people, especially employed in the public sector, that she was not the kind of conservative we saw in the Ralph Klein era, that this was something different. So under uh, Alison Redford, we saw very much this kind of move. I commented to a friend of mine who was a very strong and dedicated liberal supporter that Alison Redford was the liberals' worst nightmare. And if you look at this, you can see what's happening to the liberals in this, in this equation. All right. So you came to hear about the election, not – so finally I'm about 10 minutes in and I'm going to start talking about the election. I promise. Now, the 2012 election, I think, signaled much about the shift that occurred. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, PC campaign. The first thing I'll say is how bad it was for the first couple of weeks. They really stumbled out of the gates very badly. Some of that was beyond their control. The issue over MLA pay for the uh, committees that didn't meet was an issue that very much resonated with people and people were angry about. A lot of the complex public policy questions that we talk about are difficult to understand. There's multiple sides to it. This was one people could understand uh, easily, and there was a lot of anger over this. This was just bad timing. So that, that was obviously part of it. But the other thing I think we have to remember about the conservatives is they hadn't actually had to fight a real campaign since 1993. This was a party that was not used to actually having to win. Right? They just would coast. Uh, Ralph Klein was at best an indifferent campaigner through most of his campaign. Right, He looked bored and, oh, do I really have to do this for four weeks? Premier Stelmack was always very uncomfortable on television and uh, very dedicated, hard, hardworking from everything I saw, but not particularly interested in smiling and kissing babies uh, and that kind of thing. So the Conservatives, I think it took a while to find their footing, and I think we saw that for the first part of the campaign. But the thing I want to point to are some of the promises that the Conservatives made during the campaign. This one was a very high-profile one, where Alison Redford promised uh, that she was going to build and renovate schools. This one astounded me. Susan Elliott, this was I took from Twitter. Susan Elliott was the campaign manager for the, for the Conservatives, and she's retweeting the study that shows the dangers of private health care. And if you click on that link, it takes you to a Parkland Institute study. Now, the Parkland Institute was founded in the mid-1990s in opposition to the neoliberal conservative policies. And suddenly, in 2012, the Conservatives were actually retweeting their studies to buttress their position. That's, that's astonishing. That's a, that's a huge shift in, in the way politics works. And then, of course, um, there was this one. Alison Redford announced a 10-year plan to end poverty. This was not a conservative campaign like I've seen before in this province, right? These kind of promises were moderate, if not on the slightly left of center side. The kinds of things they highlighted were not traditional fiscal, social, conservative uh, sorts of position. 
Alison Redford campaigned like a small L conservative, which is what I've started to call her. Um, so we need to look at the flip side. Well, what happened to the Wild Rose, who looked very strong for the first couple of weeks? Well, they had the reverse problem of the conservatives. I thought they came out of the gate very strong, but after about the halfway point, they seemed to run out of things to announce, which is always a bad problem, because then other people can set the agenda for you, and that is very much what happened. In the last third of the campaign, the focus was very much on some of the impolitic things that her candidates said. Um, her views on climate change, they were very much on the defensive. They just ran out of things to, to announce, and I think that was part of the issue. I think uh, there was undoubtedly a shift in, in voter support. All the polls of all different kinds showed there was this surge in Wild Rose support that faded away towards the end. So what happened? Well, I think there really were three sources to this. There were last-minute doubters. There were a lot of people who were um, Wild Rose supporters or thinking of voting Wild Rose who had second thoughts at the last minute. I think those comments by candidates and the comments by Ms. Smith regarding um, climate change played into those fears and doubts. Uh, I will use the very scientific sample of my father's friends at the Y when he goes and works out and has coffee with them. They were all big Wild Rose supporters during the campaign, but then after the election... They confessed how many of them actually voted Wild Rose. I think he goes out with about 10 guys, one of them. The rest all chickened out at the last minute and decided they weren't ready. Small sample, I'll be the first to tell you, but I, I think there is some evidence of this, and people in the Wild Rose campaign have gone on the record and said they think this happened. The second thing is polls were showing a large number of undecided voters. And I think when we do the kind of careful studies that political scientists like to do, and I know there are a couple out in the field, we're going to find that a lot of people made their decision late in the campaign, if not right in the voting booth. And I've talked to many people who said they didn't know for sure what they were going to do till they held the pencil. Um, and, I, and it's not surprising. People don't pay a lot of attention to politics generally. And Alberta's politics had shifted. There were three new leaders. The parties had repositioned themselves. There was a lot to catch up on. If you hadn't been paying attention, it's kind of like cramming for an exam. And this is what Albertans had to do. So this undecided pool, I'm not sure pollsters necessarily caught that very well. But the other thing is, here's where we're going to critique the left-right kind of continuum, is I think we need to look at what happened in terms of of where the parties were positioned. So we talk about this left-right scale, but I think it's more useful to, to see it in two dimensions. There's the economic liberal, economic conservative, social conservative, social liberal. So to, to the left on the economic side, higher taxes, more government intervention, more social programs. To the right, lower taxes. Uh, at the top, uh, more socially permissive sorts of attitudes. At the bottom, um, less socially permissive sorts of attitudes. If you did the vote compass on CBC, you got plotted on this. And I was one of the academic advisors for Vote Compass for CBC. And the Wild Rose fit in this quadrant very much. Now, a lot of the attention during the campaign focused on this, right? The comments from the candidates had to do with attitudes towards gays and lesbians, for example, the ability of uh, Caucasian males to speak on behalf of everybody, which seemed to play into this dimension. And that was the argument, that this was the backlash that that happened. But what I'm going to argue is I actually think this dimension may have been as important, if not more important. The data I was getting from Vote Compass, and I hope that you know that when you fill out Vote Compass, 
we're helping you decide how to vote, but we're also collecting a wonderful data set, what all of you think about politics. And what we were finding, what I was being shown from the data they were sending me, is that actually this dimension was, was a much bigger predictor of distinguishing Wild Rose from conservative supporters. In fact, uh, Wild Rose supporters um, were, were much more conservative and, and uh conservative supporters tended to be more economically liberal. This was more important. We think back to public sector employees, looked at what the Wild Rose was promising to balance that budget, come hell or high water, and it wasn't hard to imagine um, the Ralph Klein era coming back. So, I don't know if any of you saw this website or saw this video. Uh, don't watch it around your kids. There's some language that you probably wouldn't want your kids to hear, but it was the strategic voting issue. And that was there. There's no question. I had probably five or six conversations a day with people I'd run into who were saying, I'm thinking of voting conservative. I can't believe it. I never thought I would. But suddenly they're the lesser of two evils. And I, I, it took people a long time to wrap their heads around this. But this happened. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And there was some data in a Leger marketing poll done after the election that this did happen. Um, and it undoubtedly played a role. And this came at the expense of the Liberals. And it had to. Alison Redford did very much turn out to be Raj Sherman's worst nightmare. All the Liberals really could say was campaign on terms of, well, we would have managed it better. They weren't putting forward things that were fundamentally different from Alison Redford was. It was, well, you've mismanaged things. And I think those were some fair criticisms. But um, that was the extent of what they could do. All right, so let's look a bit at the election results. I focused on the ideological component, but I also want to talk about the geographic realignment. You can see it on this big map, uh, pretty clear, a north-south divide. But I'm going to break it down a little further than that. We'll talk about the city of Edmonton. Edmonton was always going to be tough slogging for the Wild Rose, large number of public sector employees. Uh, sorry, the numbers here are a little small, but you can see the overall trends. Um, but the conservatives held their vote. But what you see is... Yes, the Wild Rose gained, but the liberal, the conservatives were essentially able to replace those voters by borrowing them from the liberals. And that's, that's very much what happened. The NDP gained slightly, but more or less held on to where they were. We see a very similar story in Calgary. And if the Wild Rose was going to be successful, they needed to marry the rural strength they were going to show with that support in Calgary. And, well, the Wild Rose gained substantially. But again, look what happens to the liberals and the conservatives stay flat. Now, to really prove this, we need to do more sophisticated kind of polling than the data I have available. But this is very suggestive to me. What the conservatives lost to the wild rose, they replaced from the liberals. Smaller urban centers. I get annoyed when Lethbridge gets lumped into rural Alberta. I was having a big discussion on Twitter with several people about this over the last couple of days. Um, so looking at uh, Lethbridge, Red Deer, uh, Medicine Hat, I've showed I've also included Grand Prairie and Fort McMurray in this. And you can see that um, the Wild Rose does better here than it does in the larger urban centers and these smaller centers. And the conservatives drop more, but that's probably because there are fewer liberals to borrow. That uptick in NDP support is partly an artifact of one particular district, which is Lethbridge West, which elevated that number. The NDP would look much more flat. We'll call that the Shannon Phillips effect, new political science term that I'm going to put forward. Um, 
Now, rural Alberta is very, very interesting. And in rural Alberta, if we look at the overall results here, we see the Wild Rose and Conservatives are essentially tied. The Conservatives dropped pretty substantially, and the the uh, Wild Rose went up. And again, there just weren't enough Liberal votes to be able to replace the ones they were losing to Wild Rose. The Liberals, the people who are left voting Liberal, are really the, the true believers for the Liberals. Now, let's talk about the South. Rural, the rural South is now very different. It's the only place where the Wild Rose actually has a majority. Um, so very different. The rural South has been in government, on the government side, since 1975. Um, so this is very different. It used to be that the conservatives were governed uh, largely with the rural areas with the cities forming the opposition. But now most of the opposition MP MLAs are in the rural South, which is a very different constellation. Um, I'm going to argue, I'll just quickly go through this, but this shift already started to happen under Ed Stelmack. If you look, the decline from 2008 to 2012, the slope is the same. The spread started to get introduced in 2008, and conversely, the wild rose, that took off earlier. So it actually happened in 2008, which supports my uh, Ted Morton argument. So these results, these are the seat shares. So what does this mean exactly? Well, I think the major thing is that our, our government now is less about rural and more about urban. Um, I think the cabinet that was just announced, two-thirds of the cabinet members are urban MLAs. Our transportation minister, for the first time in decades, is an urban MLA. Uh, Rick McIver's interests are LRT, public transit, which are the kinds of issues we haven't talked about. You can ask Nehenechi about this. Um, are not issues that have been as much a priority as would have been the case uh, previously. The, the, this is a big change. Alberta is heavily urbanized. It is one of the most urbanized provinces in Canada, and we have a government that reflects that now. Ideologically, we have a government that is very much in the center. And that is... Um, Interesting. There are some interesting public policy challenges the government has to deal with. The roller coaster ride in provincial revenue. Something needs to be done about that. Um, healthcare. The perception that Alberta has dirty oil. The state of democracy in the legislature. There are some serious challenges, but these are going to be tackled from the center. But the thing I want to point out is how difficult this is for governments to pull off. Being in the center is hard because you can get squeezed from both directions. You can get squeezed from the left or the right. If you go to the right, the left gets mad at you. If you go to the left, the right gets mad at you. The record from comparative party system shows there aren't a lot of successful long-term centrist parties in the world. Ask the federal liberals right now how easy it is to be in the center. It is not easy. The provincial liberals have been struggling with this for decades, and it is not an easy place to be. The other thing they have to face is the fact that the Liberals did not completely disappear. There are five of them. They have party status. They are still there, occupying more or less the same policy space. And that is a challenge for the Conservatives. So I expect very much that they're going to stay in the centre. I don't think Premier Redford is particularly interested in trying to re-win those Wild Rose voters who are more ideologically focused. I don't think that's who she is. And like I said, this is a leader-driven party. Um, but, but also, you dance with the one who got you there. And if they do a bait and switch, this will ruin them in the next election. On federal-provincial relations, Premier Redford campaigned very much on a more cooperative kind of approach, and I expect to see that. Um, I don't 
Some people have thought Stephen Harper would be more comfortable with the Wildrose government. I don't actually believe that. I actually think he's very comfortable with Alison Redford because she's somebody he can work with. What's the future of the Wild Rose? Let's quickly go through this, and I can deal with this more questions. Was this 1967, where they got the foothold that leads them into government? Or was this the Liberals in 1993, where you had your big shot and you missed it, and it's a slow, painful decline over the next two years? I'm sorry for those of you who are Liberals in the crowd. I know I'm painting a very gloomy picture. Um, the, um, some of this depends on what the... Um, Conservatives do, but a lot of it depends on what the wild rose does. To me, the wild rose has to move to the center. That's the only way they're going to do it. Daniel Smith recognized this on the social conservative front and on the firewall front, that Albertans' attitudes are not particularly social conservative, and the firewall idea may have made sense in 2001, probably doesn't make as much sense when you have a conservative prime minister who can scarcely be accused of being hostile to Alberta's interests. Um, so, but I think she also has to deal with that economic conservatism. That, I think, sparked a huge reaction, and I think she needs to watch that. Finally, they need to figure out how to get into the urban areas. So, underneath it all, um, despite the appearance of stability and just the same old story, I think we've seen a fundamental shift. I think we have a government that's now urban and centrist in a way we have not seen in probably since 1986 when the New Democrats first uh, broke the cities loose from the conservative stronghold. We have a government that's going to be more cooperative in the federal system. And so I think Alberta has changed, and I think our government now reflects the change that we've seen in this province. Thank you.